the Polmap's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined this week by Ewan Steen of the University of Edinburgh. He's talking about his new book, International Relations in the Middle East, Hegemonic Strategies and Regional Order, brand new from Cambridge University Press. We'll also hear from Stephen Schaff of George Washington University, author of the new article, Contentious Politics in the Courthouse, Law as a Tool for Resisting Authoritarian States in the Middle East. And finally, we'll hear from Zahra Ali of Rutgers University about her new article, From Recognition to Redistribution, Protest Movements in Iraq in the Age of New Civil Society. Thanks for listening to our program. This is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Stephen Schaff of George Washington University. He's the author of a new article, Contentious Politics in the Courthouse, Law as a Tool for Resisting Authoritarian States in the Middle East, which was recently published in Law and Society Review. Steve, thanks for joining us. Oh, this is great to be here. So tell us about your article. So this is a study that I started a couple of years back and the motivation for it was really to understand why people in the Arab world, specifically Egypt, Jordan, and Palestine were filing cases against state actors in court. I think there's often in political science, a large set of assumptions that authoritarian governments are places where law doesn't matter very much, where the rule of law is lacking, where governments rule by law and control the public through legal means. And if we start with those assumptions, it's really puzzling. Why, why are people bothering challenging state actors and pursuing grievances against the state and courts, places that you should expect to be somewhat difficult terrain for those types of pursuits to go forward. So I went to do field work in both Egypt, Jordan, and Palestine for a while and did survey experiments in Egypt and Jordan um, to really try and get at this question and see what was motivating people to pursue their grievances against state actors in uh, court through litigation. And we, let's just start at the very beginning then. So are citizens challenging uh, regimes in court? How many? And to varying degrees, it, it changes over time. It's gone up in Palestine over the last 20 years, mm-hmm. um, but you're still getting shy of 600 cases on average in a given year. And these are in the administrative courts, um, which are courts that have jurisdiction over public officials. And in Palestine, previously that was the High Court of Justice. Recently, that judiciary has been configured in the last two years into a new administrative court system. In Jordan, it's similar. There's a lower administrative court and a high administrative court. Um, and in Egypt, it's the Majlis al-Dawla or the Council of State that's hearing all of these cases. So Palestine, you get a little shy of 600. In Jordan, you're getting around a thousand lawsuits, give or take, in a given year. And in Egypt, uh, it's harder to get this information I found um, getting access to recent statistics a little bit more difficult in this case, uh, but previous estimates uh, from Mona Al-Gabashi and um, James Rosberg put it around 100,000 lawsuits being filed against state actors in the Majlis al in a given year. So it varies over time and also cross-nationally. And so what do they tend to be suing state officials about? Yeah, these administrative claims are usually over Um, a wide variety of issues. They could be public employment. Um, People who work for the government tend to interact with the state more or less regularly. They could be over pensions for people who have public jobs. They could be over land disputes, imminent domain disputes, municipal taxation. In Jordan, citizenship cases have gotten much more common. 
uh, especially since the disengagement from the West Bank and the precarious legal status of Jordanians of Palestinian origin. Um, you also have a large amount of unlawful arrest cases being pursued in the administrative courts, particularly in Palestine. This is um, often gonna be a plurality of the cases that are on the administrative courts dockets. And so any type of grievance mm -hmm. that someone has against a public official, whether you know ordinary state bureaucrat working for a given agency or even against you know in Palestine, President Arafat and later President Abbas, these, these cases can be pursued through the administrative courts if they fit that type of jurisdiction. If, if they're raising constitutional issues, that would be a different matter. You would need to go through uh, the, now, the constitutional courts in each case. But the vast majority of cases are not claims based on constitutional rights. They're claims on ordinary violations of statutory law or regular legal rights that are not specifically in the constitution, but other places within the legal code. And do they ever win? This is a great question. Um, so the, this project here, asking why people are suing is part of a larger project I'm looking at. Um, and one part of that is what explains when people actually succeed. If they're going to court, um, are they doing so in a way that actually is useful or is this all just kind of a pipe dream? And again, the answer is it, it varies over time. On average, um, I've looked at these lawsuits in Jordan and Palestine and collected data on all court verdicts in a number of years. Um, and it's about 30% of the time, if you aggregate all years together, people are winning lawsuits against state actors. That increases a little bit if we specifically think about lawsuits against regime actors or political elites, which could be the president, powerful security officials, a prime minister, it actually goes up the win rate um, just a little bit. So that suggests that these courts are not always fulfilling regime desires or doing what those on top want them to do. There are ways to make advances through law. Um, but again, this, this differs over time. And in Jordan and Palestine, there's been a downward trajectory in the extent that courts are issuing rulings against state actors. But even so, 30% is a non-trivial number. Um, mm -hmm. some, some lawsuits are going to be you know, frivolous cases are ones that might not have strong evidence to back them up. Um, so in, in, in any circumstance, I think that that shows there is a meaningful subset of people who are using law to pursue their challenges against the state and actually winning in doing so. Before we get to your uh, your methodology and, and your findings, um, you have a, a fairly lengthy uh, discussion of whether and how you, you, you would consider these kinds of lawsuits a form of contentious politics. So can you tell us why you say yes and no? So I conceptualize litigation against state actors in this piece as uh, lawful resistance, um, which is broadly the use of litigation to assert demands against the state or to resist policies or injuries inflicted by the state. And I think situating this in the contentious politics literature is useful because people are taking political conflicts that could be pursued through other channels, through protests, through mobilization, through lobbying, through kinship networks, and putting them inside of the courthouse. And so understanding how these types of political grievances become pursued through litigation can tell us a little bit as well about how people are pursuing their grievances you know, through conventional versus unconventional means. And those approaches I think would benefit a lot from being in dialogue. 
The, the second reason is we often approach authoritarian regimes as places where governments rule by law or rule without law. And this is a very top-down view and it's often extremely useful and gives us a lot of analytical leverage. Um, but in emphasizing how this is a form of contention through law or resistance through law, I'm really trying to highlight the bottom up side here, the way that ordinary people can take law into their own hands and use it to pursue their own interests. So it's not always just gonna be a story of governments who are trying to control the public through legal means, but there's the other side of the coin, the, the contention, the resistance side where mm -hmm. the public is trying to assert demands and resist the government also through legal means. And so putting this with the contentious politics literature, I think gives us a really interesting way to look at and frame the duality of law in authoritarian societies writ large, not just those in the Arab world. Why don't we go straight to uh, your argument, your findings uh, about why and when uh, citizens do make do choose to pursue this this approach? So the, the findings to summarize really quick is people expect or people file litigation against state actors when they expect to have a good chance at winning. Uh, it's, it's not really highly counterintuitive to say that people don't want to go to court if they don't think it's going to deliver them a favorable verdict. But what's interesting here to me is that people do genuinely expect to win in many circumstances. And as we talked about just a bit ago, they, they do sometimes win in political environments and legal environments where we would typically assume it's going to be hard for them to do so. So the next question is, well, what, what are the factors that increase people's expected likelihood of success? Um, when do they think going to court is going to be useful? I mean, when do they think it's going to be uh, less than efficacious? And here I, I test two hypotheses. The first is on the perceptions that people have about how strong the courts are um, and saying, if people think the courts are able to stand up to the, to the same, if they believe that courts are assertive, then they're gonna be more likely to use them. By contrast, if you think the courts are powerless against the state, probably not gonna spend time, resources, and energies through litigation. And so when people have information on past instances of judicial assertiveness, um, court verdicts against powerful actors could be transmitted through the media, through friends, through people they've known who have gone to work, colleagues, legal advocacy organizations, that information on judicial assertiveness makes them more likely to take their own disputes against the state into the courthouse. And the second is people go to court when they expect judges are favorable to people like them. Um, and here I'm, I'm looking specifically at shared ideology vis-a-vis -vis the government, but there could be a number of factors, um, ethnic factors, national factors um, that could condition class-based factors, whether people think judges are gonna be favorable to them um, but in this study, I'm asking, do pro-government citizens go to court more or less often than anti-government citizens, and how do we explain that? And what I find is anti-government citizens, people who believe the government doesn't have their best interests in mind, are much more likely to litigate in independent courts, courts that are you know, autonomous from those governments and they don't view as being controlled. Uh, by contrast, and this, these results are particularly derived from the Egyptian case, mm -hmm. citizens who support the government don't seem much more prone to use independent courts. If anything, they, they exhibit um, a moderate aversion or even a, somewhat of a hostility to using 
courts that they perceive as being independent from political elites, um, those elites that they actually align themselves with and identify with. And so pro-government citizens seem to, on average, expect a less favorable outcome in courts that are independent, while anti-government citizens really care about judicial independence to a high degree. And so that challenges an assumption that we have that everyone in an authoritarian society should value judicial independence equally. Um, and says that's not always going to be the case. There might be some people within the population who don't have as high of a demand for judicial independence, or might even be a little bit cautious about courts that start to get more independent over time and think it'll be harder for them to get their um, desired outcome through those institutions. They like having the system rigged in their favor. Yeah, you've summarized it a lot quicker than I did. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, so you talked before about the uh, the data set of court outcomes, and uh, you also did a lot of interviews um, in Jordan and Palestine. But tell us about the survey experiment and how you use that to kind of probe the uh, the causal logic here. So the survey experiment was a way that I was able to get views on um, the legal institutions and willingness to use them for a much broader sample of people than I was able to interview in person. So this was including about 1,500 different individuals um, from Egypt and Jordan. And you'll see in my interviews, I was able to speak with a little upwards of 80 people. And so one of the reasons for doing the survey experiment here was to see how widely shared um, throughout the population some of the things I was hearing in interviews were, the comments on independence assertiveness um, that we previously talked about. And so working with YouGov, um, we, pulled a nationally representative sample of the population in Jordan and Egypt and provided an experiment where one third of the respondents were told, have you recently heard about uh, the fact that the courts have issued a verdict uh, against state actors um, ruling their policies to be illegal? That's judicial assertiveness. Mm -hmm. the, second, the second group was told uh, courts have recently issued a verdict in favor of state actors, uh, ruling that their policies were legal, which was the treatment of judicial deference. Mm -hmm. And the third group was a control that just said, have you recently heard that the courts have issued a verdict involving state actors? Didn't say you know, which way the court's verdict was, um, but to get that kind of as a baseline. And on top of this um, randomized experiment, I also collected information on um, whether people supported the government on a five-point agreement scale, whether they thought the courts were independent uh, on a similar five-point agreement scale, um, perceptions on whether uh, central state institutions were stronger, and a whole slew of demographic factors. Um, and so the causal inference here is extremely useful because by randomizing this treatment of judicial assertiveness, we can make really strong inferences that are not correlated with potentially confounding variables. Mm -hmm. uh, legal processes, anyone, anyone's mind is gonna be extremely complex. It could be affected by income, by uh, the news that you listen to, by how far you live from a courthouse, a thousand things that I could not include as controls in, in, in the model. Um, and so you take the controls that you can think of and when you randomize the treatment, because it's random, it's by definition not correlated with any of those factors that you failed to observe. And so the inference has a high degree of causality uh, that we can ascribe to it, specifically within the context of the experiment itself. Uh, it's, it's internally valid. Um, the interviews are useful in demonstrating external validity. Is, is this experiment actually reflecting things that are happening in the real world, or is it just something that happens in the experimental setting? 
And so that's why it was important for me to combine the quantitative and the qualitative components here. Great example of mixed method research. Uh, and um, so I guess the last question real quick is, you know, you said this is part of a larger project. Um, wh where do you, what do you see as the main contribution of this project to our understanding of law and politics in the Middle East? I think theoretically, um, one of the big takeaways that I'm getting from this research agenda is the importance of looking at law from the perspective of people in society who are using it to pursue everyday interests. Um, oftentimes we'll look at law specifically in authoritarian regimes from the logic of an autocrat. You know, how do they use law to stabilize their rule? How do they use law to perpetuate the regime? How do they use law to control the public, to attract investors, to repress? Um, and so the perspective is very top down and it gives us an important part of the story. Uh, but this, this project is showing there's also another way that law is being used that's often in tension with the one that I just articulated. And that's ordinary people in society who are using the law and trying to make it work for their own benefits. And that can push against the first view um, by challenging state power. And so this bottom up and top down view moving forward, I think will benefit from a high degree of interchange between one another. Um, for the policy side of the implications here, at least for this specific article, what I would say is if people don't use the courts, the courts can't really do anything useful. If they don't have cases to resolve, they can't rule in favor of the government, they can't constrain the government. And so understanding what promotes access to justice in a society becomes extremely important. And in this regard, my, my study here on contentious politics in the courthouse gives us a few insights on how to uh, think about improving or increasing access to justice against state violations. The first is when courts are issuing assertive verdicts, publicize those verdicts. If people know that the courts are actually ruling against powerful actors, they might be more willing, at least um, according to these results, to pursue their own grievances against the state through legal means. And so local organizations, international legal organizations, media outlets that publicize judicial assertiveness can go a long way in encouraging future access to justice against the state. And the second uh, piece of advice on access to justice would be promoting judicial independence is, is important, but don't expect that everyone in authoritarian society is going to support it right away. Um, there might be some segments of the population who are ambivalent or who might be a little bit more opposed to independent courts that um, some outreach will be necessary to show like these are not going to be systematically um, more difficult for you to pursue your grievances or achieve your rights uh, if judicial independence goes up. And so promoting judicial independence, but also being cautious about potential opposition, not just from the state, but also from society will be important to keep in mind. Well, great. We've been speaking with Stephen Schaff of George Washington University about his new article, Contentious Politics in the Courthouse. Stephen, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. This is the Polmaps Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Zahra Ali of Rutgers University, talking about her new article, From Recognition to Redistribution, Protest Movements in Iraq in the Age of New Civil Society. Um, Zahra, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us about this article. Uh, well, so this article is actually based on um, on my on in-depth fieldwork research that I conducted within social movements, civil society activism uh, in Iraq, 
Um, it's also based on, on, on let's say, former uh, um, in-depth research that I conducted within specifically the feminist movement in right. Iraq. Uh, so I started really doing field work. Uh, now it's a decade. I can't believe it's been a decade since I started working on this. Um, so I, I, I started studying feminist movements and, and uh, women's rights activism. But and when I was doing that, actually, there were civil society protests starting, especially 2009, mm -hmm. then 2011, and then the very big protests of 2015. And so when I started, it was more like, how can I understand the relationship between these mass protests and feminist activism. What, where are feminists uh, in these protests? Are they participating? What are the relationship to it? But then it, my research really grew, uh, let's say, broader. And, and I started really analyzing them in the frame of a new civil society, social movements, uprising happening in the, in the region since, I mean, you've studied it uh, mm -hmm. yourself since 2011 at least. And you, and you frame this around, uh, as in the title, different types of social movements, some focus on recognition, some on redistribution. So mm -hmm. tell us about the goals and, and, and the forms that these protest movements and activists are taking and what you, what you see as distinctive about them. Yes, yeah, so I, I started the article with this uh, very kind of classic debate uh, that was analyzed by uh, Nancy Fraser as, uh, the, dile the dilemma between politics of redistribution and politics of recognition. Redistribution being, um, let's say, the socioeconomic dimension, and the recognition would be more the identity, the representation right. issues, right? And, and of course, what I'm saying is that it goes beyond that. It's more complex than, than this, this, uh, this dilemma. Um, and, well, the way I analyze it is more generally what happened since 2015. And the article focused on 2015 and 2018, and thus it was written before the October 2019 uprising. But in many ways, I think that the analysis remains the same. There's, there's some aspects where I have evolved in my thinking where the October 2019 uprising really also made me reflect on uh, civil society and mass protest a little bit differently. But let's say that the way I analyze it is that um, it, it definitely doesn't fit um, the recognition politics. It's, it's definitely a, sh a shift from, let's say, uh, it's actually um, uh, Jabbar, Falah uh, Abdel-Jabbar, who analyzed it as a, a shift from issue politics to, uh, from identity politics to issue politics. So the, the ideas are beyond, and it's in a context, of course, and this is what I, I start the article with, saying that, well, the recognition politics is actually the politics that was imposed uh, by the post-2003 invasion occupation, which is really imposing identity politics, insti institutionalizing identity politics through what we call in Iraq the Muhasasa system, right? So this really, with the, along with the debasification, etc., uh, continue the process of state destruction uh, uh, that really started in, in the 90s uh, with, with the sanctions and the, and the Gulf War. And so in many ways, these, these protests are a rejection of that. I mean, for example, the slogan of the 2015 protest was in the name of religion, we were mm -hmm. robbed by, by looters. So there's really a rejection of the use of religion, the use of, of sectarian identity, religious, ethnic identity. And, and this claim for al-Madani, and this is really the birth of al-Harak al-Madani, the, the civil right. trend in Iraq. 
And, and, it's, and this is really rooted, as you said, in, in the very sectarian structures of the Iraqi state, which exactly. kind of gives a particular twist on identity politics. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and very importantly, and I engage a little bit with the notion of revolution of Asif Bayat that, you know, he described when he described the, the, the Arab uprising. But I also, I mean, the way he, he defines it is to say that all of these uprisings are um, a revolution in the sense that they, they are more reformist than anything else because they don't have a clear anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist frame. Well, what I think is that actually thinking it this way is too limiting because I do take seriously this idea of El-Medenir in a context that has been shaped by sectarian violence, by, by an intense and an almost, I would say, an unspeakable violence uh, since 2003, with 2006 and 7, the sectarian war that we've been through, and then the invasion of Daesh. So we have a generation of young people who really have been really traumatized by this violence. Yeah. And so the Al-Harak al, al or this idea of Dawla al it's not, I think it's, it's actually quite a radical move because asking, demanding a Dawla Madaniya mean also demanding the end of, of the militarization and the militiaization, right, of, of uh, uh, let's say the dominant power and, and the political elite and its parties and its, it, and its kind of mafias that have developed since 2003 in Iraq. So, so and, and, and this is very clear in the development of protests because at first, let's say, uh, the, the, really the protesters addressed in Muhasasa, et cetera, there was some kind of a reformist, let's reform the electoral law, let, let's reform this, let's, uh, you know, a lot of proposals at the kind of legal level, but then, when we look at what happened in El Basra, for example, the continuation of, of intense, massive protest in, in El Basra, we move from uh, uh, the rejection of El Muhasasa to Kella Kella Lil Ahzab, no, no to political parties, which is quite, much quite more. Lebanon, actually. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Very comparable to Lebanon. But, but, but yes, it's true. It's true too. But, but I also think that. When we look at al-Basra in particular, there are also aspects that are very structural as well. So al-Basra, which has been, I mean, in Basra, there are, it, it's really um, uh, cyclical, like every month there's a protest. And also the, the kind of, uh, let's say, the sociological pro profile of the protesters is different from the 2015, where you have kind of a middle class seeking to assert itself. In al-Basra, it's the poor, it's the unemployed, it's the mar marginalized. It's people that know that they live in a province from which most of Iraq's incredible rich oil resources are extracted but they live in a province that where there's no job that lacks very basic infrastructures such as running water, electricity, et cetera. So, so really this, this uh, I mean, the growth of that and let's say the radicalization of the protest in Al-Basra is also something that led to the October 2019 uprising, right? Where, where, where then it's something that is, it's loose in a way because the slogan is Enrid Watan. So we want a country, meaning we want a country that is functional, we want a country, so there are also aspects of redistribution. We, we want a country with strong infrastructures, um, uh, strong institutions, education, uh, uh, health, employment, etc. We also want a country uh, where we can live a good life. There's also, Enrid uh, Watan is also associated with Enrid and Aish. We want to live, we want to live the good life. So you see here that 
there are structural demands associated with demands of, of, of freedom, right? Freedom to be religious or not to be religious. And in, in this context, saying that is pretty radical because you know that you can get killed by a militia for, mm -hmm. for, for demanding uh, a law that sanctions uh, uh, um, uh, gender-based violence, for example, that is a campaign that is ongoing among feminists in Iraq. So, well, let's, so let's, let's talk about that angle a little bit, yes. the, the, the role of women and uh, kind of gender and feminism in these protests, since that's a particular interest of yours with your wonderful book. Thank you. Yes, yeah, it is. I mean, what I say is that actually there has been a kind of enjoyization of women's activism since 2003 in the same way that it, ha it has happened in the whole region, right? Where you have a network of funds, uh, of uh, you know, funding that really shape women's agenda and you have kind of similar campaign that are, uh, you can find them in Lebanon, you can find mm -hmm. them in Palestine, you can find them in Iraq. But on the other side, women activists have also act as substitute of the uh, absence of state institutions, right? So, so really present in kind of uh, trying to fulfill everyday needs for people, right? So it, it's kind of, 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 of contradictory aspect, but really women's rights activi uh, um, activism is composed of both these things. So mm -hmm. a kind of more NGO, NGOized level, but also an, an everyday level where you see women's group really uh, fulfilling roles that should be actually fulfilled by the state, right? Uh, and, and, and kind of my argument is to say that this civil society protest, this mass movement that, that have been emerging, uh, have really pushed many, let's say, established old school civil society uh, organization outside of, of, of their comfort zone mm -hmm. in articulating really the structural and the political as well as the societal. And, and I think here it's really important to take the societal again seriously. Uh, freedom is something very serious in post-2003 Iraq, when you can get killed because you demand to be, uh, the freedom to be dressed the way you want to be dressed, right? So, so, so I think that this is really uh, what, uh, what the uprising is, is, is doing, is that it, it's really kind of fostering and, and opening, uh, producing a space for new kinds of activism that uh, don't fit the kind of traditional political activism that we used to. So interesting. Um, you mentioned that in the, at least in 2015, that uh, the role of the Sadr campaign or the Sadrist movement in the protest mm. was a particular point of controversy with these with many of these women. Yes, yeah, 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 exactly. So, uh, and I think it really um, um, reveals the kind of two trends of, of, of women's rights activism. We have kind of the, the old school, uh, let's negotiate, let's, let's see, because the Sadrist movement has a huge base and you have this kind of reformist agenda to say, well, if we manage to actually convince them that a dawl al-madaniya, having a civil state is something important, if we manage to uh, kind of convince them that uh, we have to end this militarization, if we, we manage to open a conversation with them, it might actually be beneficial for the whole movement. And you have the other side, uh, uh, which is um, more kind of a leftist form of, of feminist activism that rejects that and that says, well, where is the feminist agenda in the protest? And when we work with the Sadris, we are uh, kind of, we're not negotiating our rights, we are compromising our feminist agenda, right? So, so there's, but, but, but I have to say, I, I think that both these, these trends are, are also old school, <laughs> you know? Like, should, should, we, should we negotiate with Islamists or not? This is also kind of a traditional debate. 
Whereas I think that what, what is happening, if, and if we look at the uprising uh, in 2019, especially as a social drama, as something that is producing an alternative space with all kinds of people who are absolutely far away from established activism and who are um, expressing demands, but also kind of leaving these demands. I mean, the, the kind of miniature society that was living in Tahrir Square in Baghdad or Sahat al-Habubi in Nasriya, for example, this is something else. Here we really see something that is changing, let's say, the. The, the imaginary, it's, it's a new discourse, and it's also uh, uh, um, people living together in the material space of, of, of the squares of protest. And, and, and my, in an article that's gonna come out soon, my, my main argument is to say that actually this uprising is, is, is a rise against herbicide, right? The, the very destruction of the urban life. And, and in, in, in El Medaniya, there is Kalimat El Medina, the word city, right? So it's really the right to the city. And it's also a rise against necropolitics, right? And it's a celebration of life. I think that the uprising is also uh, the, the celebration of life, of the good life, and it's also kind of a big party. <laughs> and this is an aspect that sometimes gets missed when we, we have a more uh, limited analysis of, of what's going on. And we, we see it uh, too much, uh, uh, like we are searching for, okay, what are the demands? where I think it's more important to observe what is going on and, 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 and see how actually within the spaces of protest, um, uh, these protesters are proposing new, new ways of, 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 of this, I mean, new, urb, new, new forms of urban life, I would say. Well, I guess one last question then is, and this goes beyond the scope of, of your article, but since we have you here um, on the show, where do you see the the protest movement going now, given everything that's been happening? Um, yeah. What's your what's your read of the current state of uh, of this you know kind of uh, civil trend in Iraq? Yeah, well, I think that in the long term, um, at the societal level as well, in terms of social norms, religious norms, societal norms more generally. Uh, the uprising really changed something very deep. It, it really opened something, uh, a new imaginary, a new discourse. But at the political level, in, in, in the kind of short, short term, unfortunately, there's, there's, there's not much that has been achieved. I mean, really, the, the appointment of a new prime minister. Uh, of course, there are people organizing to um, candidate, to form like a, 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 an electoral list to candidate in, in, in the next election. But I think this is really at the superficial level. So I, I think that unfortunately, in the short term, I don't think that the uprising necessarily uh, has a huge impact, but it's more in the long term, uh, uh, in, in, in people's political imaginary, in the discourse, uh, uh, in really kind of, uh, um, let's say, extending this idea of al-Madaniya to, to a wider spectrum within, within the Iraqi society. Well, thanks. We've been speaking with Zahra Ali of Rutgers University. Uh, Zahra, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. This is the Poll Maps Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined on this week's book segment by Ewan Steen of University of Edinburgh. He's the author of the new book, International Relations in the Middle East, Hegemonic Strategies and Regional Order, just published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, Ewan, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. So tell us about the book. Um, yeah, so this book 
um, as you say, international relations in the Middle East, uh, hegemonic strategies and regional order is, I suppose it tries to do two things. So it, it's, it's firstly supposed to give kind of an overview of the international history of the Middle East from the end of the First World War up until uh, roughly the present. So kind of um, early 2020, I think uh, that is um, reasonably accessible um, and covers sort of the main um, sort of regional dynamics over that period. Uh, but it also puts forward um, what I think is a kind of a new uh, framework for understanding regional order. So for understanding interactions between states um, as well as non-state actors uh, in the Middle East. And the key concept really is this idea of hegemonic strategies, um, which I think distinguishes the book from some of the other kind of paradigmatic works of international relations in the Middle East, which come from maybe realist or constructivist perspectives. This is more of a kind of historical, uh, sociological um, lens to look at the region. Well, tell us what you mean by hegemonic strategies then, if that's the core concept of the book. <clears throat> yeah, so by hegemonic strategies, this this kind of hints at the, the Gramscian um, kind of uh, theory theoretical uh, perspectives that I draw upon. Um, and I, I suppose hegemonic strategies can be conceived as part of broader hegemonic projects, which are the ways in which um, states as works in progress uh, kind of try to reproduce certain uh, configurations of power internally. Um, and so a hegemonic project can encompass a whole range of um, elements, including ideological ones, coercive ones, economic, military, etc. Um, but when I'm looking at hegemonic strategies here, it's really the foreign policy dimensions of those projects. And so it looks at foreign policy, not just as something that's expressive of states' international interests, but that's expressive of the, um, the kind of efforts that configurations of power, be they class class power um, or what, whatever, whatever sort of um, power relations are dominant within states pursue in order to in order to reproduce themselves, in order to remain in power. Um, and so foreign policy is part of that is, is, is forms a part of that hegemonic strategy. And so I, I then look at regional order as a kind of aggregate of the hegemonic strategies of pivotal powers in the region. Um, and I, I suppose I focus, and again, you know, this is this is the sort of debt to Gramsci and Althusser. Uh, I focus a lot on the ideological dimensions. Um, and I, I see that within hegemonic strategies, there are two kind of types of foreign policy orientation. There's one that's that's outward looking and that is aimed at external backers, external supporters. Um, those that can provide states with economic and military aid, for example. Um, and I, I call this competitive support seeking. So states have to make the case to external backers that they are worthy of support. So that's part of, you know, and the, the Middle East geopolitical position has been such that um, the states of the region have been dependent um, to quite significant degrees on external support. But then the other aspect is more inward looking. So this is the ideological externalization strategies, which are also part of hegemony. Um, and again, 
this kind of relates to the way the states have been formed over the years, um, which has been primarily as fairly exclusionary, if not authoritarian entities. Um, with low levels of domestic legitimacy. And so foreign policy can play a role in shoring up that internal uh, legitimacy. So these two aspects combined, I think, can help us understand how regional order has unfolded in the Middle East ver through various different periods. So it's a, it's a different way of thinking about the state and how, how states conceptualize their interests. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it sort of, it jumps off from this critique of international relations or mainstream international relations theory, um, which tends to treat the state as, as a finished product. So it's not looking at the states as continually forming and reforming processes. It's looking at the state as a, as a unit that conducts a foreign policy. Um, and I think this can result in a, a several kind of misunderstandings about the region. Um, particularly when it comes to the role of, of societies and identity um, in the region, um, and that identity is not something that's simply fixed and that, that can drive uh, or shape foreign policies. It's something that is part of the very structure of power within the state, mm -hmm. um, and that this changes over time and it varies from state to state. Um, so in a way, it kind of it adds to constructivism in that it locates identity within internal power struggles. Um, and it adds to realism in that it looks at um, ideas as something that are important, but they're not important in the sense that a lot of constructivist um, approaches would have would, would have it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So so you talk about the uh, the role of society. And so, for example, you have a really interesting take on the role of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt beginning in the 1970s. So use that and kind of walk us through how what, what do you mean exactly by these state society configurations? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the role of the Muslim Brotherhood and of Islamism more broadly is is really interesting. And it's not something that tends to be brought out in international relations other than you know, maybe the idea that that Islamists constitute this sort of challenge to, to sovereignty or to the idea of the nation state or, or constitute a sort of a counter hegemonic um, force. Um, and we're, we're often kind of assume that Islamists are opposition movements within states, which which indeed they are in many cases. Um, but I think what have, what the way I view the Muslim Brotherhood in the in the Egyptian case is that it becomes part of, of the ideological state apparatus of Egypt from the 1970s. So even though Egypt as a state is moving towards the Western orbit, it's making peace with Israel. Um, in a way, it's outsourcing some of the ideological power that it used to enjoy during the Nasser years to the Muslim Brotherhood as a societal actor. And the Muslim Brotherhood, in this in this sense, kind of absorbs um, or man, en enables the state to maintain the social power that it once had, whilst also moving in a, in a neoliberal direction. And this has, you know, some quite far-reaching effects on how foreign policy ev evolves, um, which I think is means that it's important to take a, a fairly long historical view. Mm -hmm. Um, in that the Muslim Brotherhood kind of 
consolidates its, itself as, as part of the Egyptian state, not officially part of the Egyptian state, but it enables the Mubarak regime um, to survive in that it, it absorbs resistance and opposition to the Mubarak regime, that there's a, there's a place for that opposition to go, which is inside the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and the other side of that is that the Muslim Brotherhood is articulating an oppositional form of foreign policy. So it's, an art, it's, it's articulating a foreign policy that's at odds with that, with the one that the Egyptian state is actually pursuing. Now, this in some ways explains some of the longevity of, of the Egyptian regime, despite the fact that it was ostensibly pursuing this very unpopular uh, foreign policy throughout the 1980s and 90s. Um, but I think we also see, you know, with 2011, that you have an uprising against that regime, which in a way kind of showed that that formula was no longer working. You know, that the idea that, that an Islamist movement could form this kind of ideological buttress for the state that, that people wouldn't um, seek to overthrow the, the state because the Muslim Brotherhood was there as a focus for oppositional uh, feeling that was that stopped short of wanting to change the regime. Um, so these uprisings showed that this wasn't something that was actually sustainable. And then you had obviously the rise of, of, of Turkey as a new regional actor which tried to tap into mm -hmm. um, the uprisings, tried to try to tap into the fact that the Muslim Brotherhood was was leaning in some ways towards um, being a vehicle for the revolution in Egypt, although its its position its positionality as part of the state complicated that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I go into this in the book and in, in in sort of the the latter chapters um, that you had this kind of prospect of a new Islamist regional order based upon. Um, some kind of uh, brotherhood-dominated um, states in Egypt and potentially Syria, which obviously didn't come to fruition. Um, there was the counter-revolution in Egypt, and there was the uh, sort of deterioration of the revolution in Syria and the marginalization of the Muslim Brotherhood. But Turkey was trying to harness both of these dynamics in order to establish a, a regional order with itself, at the center, which, which failed. So I, I think I think Islamism in that sense, if you take that long view and look at what the Muslim Brotherhood was from, from the 1970s until today, it becomes quite clear that um, societal actors like the Brotherhood are very much part of international relations in the Middle East, not just as, you know, sort of breeding grounds for terrorism or something like that, but as part of state hegemony as part of the mm -hmm. challenges to state hegemony and that different act state actors form relationships or exploit relationships with societal actors in order to try and reshape regional order. Great. So you have these two uh, other key concepts that you mentioned earlier in our conversation, the uh, competitive support seeking and ideological externalization. So give us something concrete and to show us what these mean, what they look like in practice. <clears throat> um, yeah, well, so when I walk through the different chapters, so at the, at the beginning of the book, I, I look, I go right back to the sort of post First World War period, um, where you had 
regimes that were had fairly low social power internally were very much dependent on external support um, for their persistence, you know, as a as a legacy of the of the colonial um, era and as part of the of the colonial era that persisted through those those decades. Um, but unless unless the state had something inherent about it, such as, you know, Turkey was was bordering the Soviet Union. So it's it's support. It's the fact that it enjoyed external support was was kind of guaranteed. And the, the same could be said for Iran um, during those years um, or in possession of 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 massive amounts of oil resources, for example, could could enable a state to be fairly, fairly sure that it was going to receive the external kind of security guarantees and, and backing that, that it needed um, and economic support. But for other states, such as the, the Arab states, um, as they passed through that period of, of mandatory rule to kind of nominal independence, they had to compete with each other in order to make the case that they were worthy of um, of, of support, of, of guarantee, external guarantees for their survival as, as states under particular leaderships. Um, and so I look at, in particular, the Arab-Israeli conflict, and Israel is the same. It's a state that does not inherently have value in terms of strategic location or resources. And so these states, the Arab states themselves, have to have to compete amongst each other to make the case that, you know, the El Saud is more worthy of support than than the Hashemites, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and the Arab-Israeli conflict in, in one aspect evolved as a kind of this series of discourses making the case to the West that that it was necessary to support, you know, Israel or the Arabs against each other. And so I, I look at how this how what sort of ideological strategies were were used in order to drive that process of competitive support seeking. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of think, I, th I think what's interesting about looking at, at it from that way is that you have a view of the Cold War, you know, as I move into the next phase, right? Um, that is not dismissive of the role of the, of the superpowers of the USA and USSR, but looks at how regional actors were, were able to, and very much were instrumental in shaping the discourse of the Cold War in the region. Um, so it, it's not so much that these states, I mean, and that that itself is something that scholars have have noted before, that the Cold War meant something very different in the Middle East to, to how it what it meant and that there are dynamics, you know, right, that originate from the region and everything's not outside in. Um, but in terms of how these these discourses like that of the Arab Israeli conflict, which was very much kind of associated with the struggle between communism and capitalism during the Cold War, that, you know, Nasser was a stalking horse for communism. Um, so the Arab-Israeli conflict in that sense can be looked at as a structure whereby states could compete for the support of external powers, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then ideological externalization, um, you have some really interesting examples there, like with Iran. Mm. Yeah. So... So this one is more about looking at how regimes have sought to kind of reproduce their power in, internally um, and shore up support amongst key domestic constituencies. And, and this 
you know, the fact that the key domestic constituencies is not something that just means, you know, all of society. There are certain elements of society uh, whose support is essential for authoritarian regimes to continue. Um, so with, with the Iranian case, I mean, I think, so if you look at Iran post-1979, um, the, fact, the fact that this was a revolutionary state was obviously key to generating internal support. Um, but I Iran's external relationships were very important in substantiating the revolution as an on ongoing process. Hmm. Um, and so this is something that, you know, obviously began, you know, with 1979 and with the war with Iraq that, that broke out shortly after that. Um, but it continued on through Iran's support of Hezbollah and Hamas um, and Islamic Jihad, the so-called axis of resistance, which again tends to be looked at as mainly through the lens of Iran's ability to project power in the region, that its relationships with Hezbollah, and we see this very clearly now, enable Iran to extend influence in the region. Um, but as important, I think, was was the way in which having Hezbollah and Hamas that were actively engaged in the Arab-Israeli conflict, which was a key raison d'etre of the revolution itself, enabled the regime to sort of legitimize itself internally, or at least provide a repertoire through which supporters of the regime could, you know, ju justify the fact that the revolution was ongoing and was worthy of support. Um, so in, when, I look at, when I look at Hezbollah uh, and its relationship with Iran as a form of ideological externalization, um, I'm again kind of going back to how we understand the state. Um, and I think if you look at, if you, if you consider the state as, as an ideological state apparatus in Althusserian terms, you can conceptualize Hezbollah as part of the, Isra the Iranian state in that it's integral to the to to the hegemony of the Islamic Republican regime um, and particularly the the conservative faction within that regime um, so that's yeah that's kind of that's one aspect of what I mean by ideological right. externalization and there were there were several other uh, relationships between states and non-state actors that I look at in the book as well um, including, you know, in other periods, so look, looking at right. East Egypt and the Ba'ath Party, for example, in Syria and Iraq. Right. So, and, and that kind of, you know, as you said at the, at the outset, uh, the book has a long historical scope going back to the very formation of the Middle Eastern regional order and the nominal independence of states. Um, but let's look at like the 2011 and after the most recent period. What does this way of understanding states and societies and, and, and regional order, how would you interpret what's been happening since 2011 and what, what unique insights does your theoretical approach give us? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, yeah, I think from, from 2011, we've seen on the surface, it looks like some of some of the um yeah i mean I, I i think you had these sort of domestic revolutions that happened uh, and and a lot of people at the time said well these these are about these are internal matters these are not about foreign policy um this is not about palestine um this is not about american imperialism 
This is about democracy, freedom, social justice. Uh, and so to a great extent, that is true. Um, and then you had the kind of di disintegration of these movements into forms of sectarianism that and then the narrative was, well, actually, you haven't you haven't got this kind of democratic revolution, this democratic wave in the Middle East because of sectarianism. It's been kind of it's run up against this wall of sectarian hatreds that have prevented revolutions from happening in Syria, in Bahrain, um, in Yemen, in and and in a different way in Egypt. You know, the the discourse about the Muslim Brotherhood is is essentially sectarian in Egypt. So I suppose what I one of the things that I tried to do is show um, that whereas on the surface it looks like, you know, initially the international or foreign policy aspects of the Arab Spring are absent, they, they have actually been very, very important, like very, very crucial um, in the sense that, you know, you had revolutions or uprisings that were challenging regimes that were based in a particular configuration of, of power in, in the region and and which which resulted from the way those regimes had been connected to the global environment and to external backers, including the United States. And so that these these were inherently international processes mm -hmm. on, on, on that level. And then also, as I alluded to earlier, you had kind of new actors or actors like Turkey who had by that point um, and Qatar as well, I suppose, is, is, is another example there, uh, trying to um, not, only sh not only kind of um, capitalize on the revolutions to extend their influence in the region, but, but to sort of herald in a new, a new kind of regional order based on different kinds of uh, different forms of governance in the region. So I suppose it's connecting the domestic changes to the regional ones, uh, to the regional level, would be one of the key um, contributions. And I, and I suppose also putting sectarianism in its proper context. So mm -hmm. looking at where these sectarian antagonisms come from, um, and that they have both this externalizing function in that they, um, they enable regimes to kind of discredit domestic opposition by linking it to uh, external forces. Um, but also, again, they, they kind of, they form a way for regimes to make the case for the continuation of external support, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But, and one of the things which is especially notable about the post-2011 uh, period is the high degree of interventionism by states into the internal affairs of other states, uh, the Gulf states, Turkey, and the like. And so, how do you read the um, the kind of the, the competing hegemonic projects playing out in theaters like Egypt or Syria or Yemen? Um, what unique sorts of uh, insights does your approach give us into that general dynamic of how states are changing? Yeah, I mean, I I think that the forms of interventionism are. Are really interesting. I mean, one of the dynamics that I, I sort of tried to discuss, which I don't think is often really kind of focused on, is that between Egypt and Turkey. Mm -hmm. And so you, there was, you know, from 
from the time the AKP came to came to power in in the early two thousands, but particularly after two thousand and seven, Turkey was trying to position itself as a credible broker in the Arab-Israeli conflict in the Arab-Israeli arena, um, and was you know applauded by by the Bush administration in in the US for being this kind of standout example of of a democratic yet Islamic state. Um, Islamist state even mm-hmm. that could um, offer something to the United States and to um, Israel in, in by providing a kind of more legitimate form of mediation between Israel and the Palestinians um, which very much upstaged Egypt because the the Egyptian argument had long been under Mubarak that Egypt could be this you know broker in the conflict with you know taking advantage of its relations with with the the PLO but also its peace treaty with Egypt and it would do this on a largely security based level um this was not a kind of this was not to do this was not to do with Egypt's role as a as a beacon of democracy um or that it would that it would be pursuing undertaking this role in any kind of um democratically legitimate way Right. So there was the the idea that Turkey could perform this role um, in a way that that would that would bring some kind of honourable peace, and that was based on the idea of democratic transformations across the region, was deeply threatening to Egypt, um, and it was also deeply threatening to Saudi Arabia. So I suppose the Saudi intervention um, in Egypt against the Islamist uh, against the Muslim Brotherhood in two thousand and thirteen was in some ways, and, I, and you can see similar dynamics, I think, in the Syrian context, was in some ways about stopping that happening. You know, the, this idea that you could have a pro-Western yet Islamist and democratic uh, order based around Egypt and Turkey mediating in the Arab-Israeli conflict um, was was threatening to the to the interests of Saudi Arabia and the military in Egypt, which had for many years constructed a regional order that was based upon the premise that you needed strong authoritarian states. Otherwise, you would have Islamist governments and you would have the collapse of the peace treaties and Israel would be in jeopardy, you know, as as crudely stated. So I, I think that that's one of the things I tried to bring out that, again, these sort of domestic transformations very intimately connected to regional order they were inward looking, these hegemonic strategies were inward looking as well as outward looking towards external um, backers. I guess the last question would then be, so you've made this intervention in both uh, the theory of the international relations of the Middle East and also in the historiography in a way of the region. You know, what do you hope the impact will be in terms of how people study and understand uh, the international relations of the region? I think the main one is that there shouldn't be a there shouldn't be a, a sort of sharp division between looking at domestic politics, you know, authoritarian resilience, democratic transition on the one hand, uh, and international relations on the other. That these two things are in, intimately related, um, and that when we talk about sort of you know, in IR terms, security regionalization, or the idea that you get a stable security uh, system in the in the Middle East, or in you know 
in more familiar terms, if you talk about peace, you know, the achievement of peace, which is obviously a very, very ambiguous term. But, you know, the sort of overcoming of these regional antagonisms, whether it be between Arabs and Israelis or Sunni and Shia, um, sectarian divisions, these are inextricably connected to these to, to struggles for democracy um, and inclusion within the states of the region. Um, and so you can't have one without the other, I would argue. That's a sort of normative point that I think the book points towards, is that you know any any kind of project that aspires to achieve peace in the region will have to focus on the domestic arena um, and and the achievement of of more inclusive forms of government uh, in the region. Well, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, it's a very uh, original and innovative uh, reading of the international relations of the Middle East. Um, I want to thank uh, Ewan Steen for joining us uh, to talk about his new book, International Relations in the Middle East. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me.